Hi, this is Cam Smith, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Eat It, a weekly radio show about food and drink broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website. Hey, guys, why don't we eat? Dear Doc, or the boss, I'll have your spam. I love it. Oh, in spam, spam, spam. Cornflakes. Song, ladies and gentlemen, how do you do? It's the afternoon. It's the afternoon shift here at 3 Triple RFM. I don't know why it's sounding like I'm broadcasting at night. How you doing uh, out there? I got Matt Stedman. Oh, g'day, Ken. Hey, bro. What, what a pleasure to see you here in our East Brunswick container. Uh, we're back after last week and... Jeez, uh, what a day. It's gorgeous out there. It's it cold. Is, it's divine. But it's sunny and beautiful. Picnic weather. Rug up. Yeah. yeah. You know, you could pack a little bit of uh, mulled wine, yeah, perhaps. What a delight. That would be good. <laughs> Something in my pop cover. <laughs> it's a bit weird. <laughs> haven't, haven't had that problem since Fitzroy. Uh, we're always going to be picking things out of the pop covers there. Uh, but that's uh, one of those little behind-the-scene things that... Uh, you probably don't really need to know, mm. I suppose. Um, before we get started, um, what a delight it was to come into the station this afternoon, or actually mm. this morning, and there it is, just on the kitchen table, <laughs> yes. just on the kitchen table, Community Cup. The mighty Community Cup trophy. Go megahertz. What a game. We forgot to mention it last week because we were pre-recorded, but yeah, yeah huge well, day out from everyone. Like, and, and the weather was extraordinary, and yeah. 
Uh, the right team won, we're proud to say. Yes, right. So, uh, let's Happy do it next year. <laughs> uh, the dogs had a great time at quarter time and half time and three quarter time. Uh-huh. And uh, if there's one thing that shows and makes Melbourne really, really Melbourne and shows, you know, the community spirit that we have and the diversity that we have, I think we could all agree hmm. that the Reckling Community Cup ticks all those boxes. And it's good to see it back after the two years that everyone's had. The hiatus. Yes. Big hiatus. So, yeah, there's, there's that. So um, we thought we'd just acknowledge that and uh, just to see it in its physicality um, mm. was, was quite something. It's, it's like this iconic <laughs> relic now, isn't it, really? <laughs> it's like, whoa, that, wow, that, that, there it is. Uh, next to, I think, a few apples, a little basket of apples someone had decided to yes. to bring to the station. Uh, as well, we um, uh, congratulations mm. uh, as well as to the, the mighty megahertz and, uh, and their abilities and their training and all those things that um, made them the champions that they are. Yes. Um, another champion that um, has taken place... Way over in San Francisco. Yes, from Port Melbourne to San Francisco. No, 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 no. No, actually, I'll, I'll correct you. Go. Not often that I get to do this, Matt. <laughs> uh, so I need to relish this moment. Just... <laughs> Essendon. Oh, from Essendon originally. Remember? Yes, yeah, yes, they yes. Could... Starwood Whiskey. Yes. Um, first started off, the, the vision of David Vitale mm. uh, to subject barrels to the Melbourne climate, which allowed whiskey to mature at a faster rate than it does in dear old Scotland, where yes. what's the weather like? The same as yesterday, and the same, <laughs> it's raining and it's awful. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that, you know, we get the four seasons in one day means that whiskey matures quicker. And, um, yeah, he started off at Essendon Airport and then mm-hmm. moved to his rather mm, sprawling and luxurious uh, confines in Port Melbourne, just, yeah. ne- just next to a Bunnings, of all places. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant place. What did he win, Matt? Well, you, uh, he won... Uh, they won quite a lot this week, um, mm. and that's because the San Francisco World Spirit Competition was held. As they say on their website, some call it the Oscars of Booze. It's kind of like mm. one of the biggest uh, distillery and spirit shows in the world. obvious and cliched. Good thing you didn't get a hold of that copy. You would have put your red pen on it, wouldn't I'm you? I'm quaffing someone else, I'm pleased to say. Yes. Uh, but as well as winning a lot of medals for their individual brews, they actually took out the top prize, which is Distillery of the Year. So It's like the champion of, champion of it's show. the biggest prize in one of the biggest shows, if not the biggest show. In uh, one of the biggest markets. Absolutely. And you know what I like about Starwood? So um, I think their their standard whiskey, it's Two Folds, I think it's called. Um, And unlike a lot of Australian booze... Barley and wheat. Yes. And unlike a lot of um, Australian booze that's won these top awards, it's not unobtainium. You can get a bottle of this award-winning whiskey. I think it retails for about $70 or $80, which is not sky high in whiskey parlance. And Mm. you can get it from... Pretty much any bulk retailer um, that you choose to visit. So if you want to have a, a little sample of this award-winning product, it's pretty easy to come by, which is a good thing to say. It is, and um, and huge congratulations. And if you haven't been to the uh, the Port Melbourne headquarters, uh, the dis- the distillery... You know, I'm going to put my hand... I haven't been there. I've driven past it so many times. It's wicked. Oh, nice. Yes. No, it, it really is. It's, mm. it's such a... Um, and and I've got to say that Australian distilled spirits um, 
the boutiques have just God, their game is good because <laughs> um, Four Pillars, as yes. well as that, has just undergone a a huge restoration there. Mm-hmm. Like that's in Hillsville. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's incredible. But um, getting back to what I was originally saying, if you haven't been to Port Melbourne, had a look at Starwood, you should have a look. Uh, and congratulations to David, although he won't be listening because. He uh, he lives with the plaid sh- uh, plaid shirt wearing tribe. Oh, uh, that is the uh, the tribe in Seattle. Although, oh I, right, I can't really see David Vitale in a plaid shirt. <laughs> no, no, no. He's, he's far too cool for that. So yeah, <laughs> uh, good on you. On today's today's show, show Cameron. Thank you. We've got um, uh, someone. When I rang him, uh, he said, "Yeah, I was waiting for you to call." <laughs> And uh, and that is Matt from Melbourne Rooftop Honey uh, dealing with a what is a potential doomsday scenario for Australian agriculture and apiarists everywhere. It is a potentially wickedly serious problem. It is potentially wickedly serious. Mm. Beautiful words put together there, Matt. The Varroa destructor mite. Um, it is. Uh, it's it's a nasty little insect and. Uh, we have managed to keep this continent varroa free. This is one of the, the great things about this this country, uh, even though it seems kind of ridiculous when you come back, if you're lucky enough to come back on a plane, you know, mm. and all the things you have to fill out and people checking your shoes and stuff. We're going to talk to Matt from Melbourne Rooftop Honey, one of uh, the duo of Matt mm. and Vanessa, uh, and we're going to be talking about uh, the ramifications, the reality, where we're at, and uh, maybe how uh, amateur apiarists can help Ooh. as well. Because mm, it's going to be, you know, this old that old cliche mm. about democracy, um, um, a bit about being. Uh, what is that old cliche about <laughs> democracy? I'm just trying to think what it is. Um, you uh, you have to keep your eyes open. Is it vigilance? I think vigilance is involved somewhere. Eternal. Eternal vigilance. Eternal vigilance. There and you so go. it is with I'm the bees. I'm pointing my finger at you. Eternal vigilance. <laughs> Got like an old man. Sorry about that. Um, so, yes, Melbourne Rooftop Honey and Matt is coming up soon. And then the prodigal son has returned. Uh, John Ford, who used to be on uh, Radio Marinara, mm. has um, has taken the, the long road from Monbolk into the studios here at 3 R. Mm-hmm. He was, uh, you would have known him as marine biologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have heard him recently, actually. We did the interview, I think, maybe six months ago or something. I'm not quite mm-hmm. sure of time. I'm still on COVID and <laughs> all that sort of, I don't know when it happened. Uh, but uh, John Ford from Unearthed Mushrooms joins us in the studio to chat about mycology and you, you know, the the mushroom and you and how mm-hmm. uh, we are so spoiled for choice now and um, just mushrooms in general and how to cook them as well. And um, Paul from recently opened Deep End Pizza to talk about the cultural differences and the physical differences of pizza from Chicago, Detroit and the Big Apple and... Uh, one of the things I really want to say to him is that, you know, the United States is such a dichotomy in that it is such a land of uh, homogeneity in, mm. in in a lot of its food. Mm. And yet there is still such a wonderful cultural diversity still apparent in the food um, that has grown in America. And 
this is a place that Paul has opened where you can experience three different cultural variations on a pizza, on, I was saying, on, on an Italian interpretation of food. I was saying before the show, I, I, New York pizza, absolutely heard of it before, had it before, heard mm. of Chicago pizza, had mm. not heard of Detroit pizza, so I'm intrigued. Well, stay tuned. I'll learn more. Stay tuned. It is 12.12. Gee, we've taken a couple of minutes too long on our intro. Yeah, Matt's going, come on, break it. <laughs> we're going to get Matt on the line, and we're going to be talking about, yeah, some serious stuff. Glad you could join us. Triple R. Listeners, um, it's a funny old thing that uh, when I rang this gentleman, as I said before, uh, that he's a very, very dry man. And he went, yeah, I was expecting a call from you. <laughs> uh, you're a little bit late. So uh, without further ado, from uh, Melbourne Rooftop Honey, uh, we'd like to just welcome back to the airwaves. We've spoken many, many times in the past. Unfortunately... The subject ain't so pretty, and uh, here he is. Hello, Matt. Ooh. Hey, hey, how you doing, guys? I'm doing good, <laughs> doing good. Um, wow. Um, yep. I think <laughs> it's uh, we. Th- there is that Chinese curse to live in interesting times, and uh, luckily, because of the proximity and the geography of this country, we've we've sort of dodged the bullet uh, that. Um, other continents have haven't, and yeah. uh, the Varroa is possibly here. So, uh, do you want to just take it over? And uh, a very good afternoon to you, and thank you for having a chat to us. But let's talk about the specificity. God, I wish I could say that word um, about Varroa and why it's called a destructor, and uh, and the ramifications that uh, are coming down the line. Yeah, so uh, a lot of your listeners, or your long-time listeners, would would probably uh, be able to recall that um, a decade, over a decade ago, that you know we uh, this is the, the part of the reason for our project's start and our existence today. Yes, was to raise aware, awareness of the potential harm that Varroa could do if and when it got to Australia, and uh, we. Um, well, it wasn't. Uh, it was not last Thursday, but uh, the Thursday before um, was our doomsday. It uh, it happened. So, what uh, essentially has gone on is uh, we we have sentinel hives in our ports around the country that are managed by the Department of Primary Industries in each state, and they are regularly checked for um, for diseases coming in via wow. bees, uh, and that's where we've always been expecting it to come in via our ports. That was because uh, we talk about vectors, don't we, in this in yeah. these sort of uh, scenarios, don't we? Yeah, that's right. And so our uh, we did have a scare in Melbourne a couple of years ago where it was found on the sh- on the deck of a ship, uh, and they reported it and did the right things, and it was that was in Cairns, was, wasn't it? No, 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 no. We had it in Melbourne. In the, in no, Bay, Melbourne. In Melbourne. It, was, Bay. it was in the Bay. That's right. And the only yeah. thing that saved us was that the uh, one of the crew members was an apiarist and did yep. the right thing in that's quotation it. marks. Did, yeah, did the right thing, and we had it was in it was in our cooler months, which also saved us because the <sighs> the hive was incredibly weak by the time it got here. Yes. So that was eradicated in the Bay. So what we now have is the first time that Faroa Destructor has made land in Australia. Um, what they have found they have found it in the sentinel hives they found it in a few sentinel hives whereabouts um, 
Uh, so around the Newcastle area, mm-hmm. and then what they've found, they've set up a so they've set up some zones, some uh, three tiers of of hot zones, so to speak. Um, they've set up the uh, immediate um, the immediate area around the bees is a eradication zone, ten kilometres. So anyone with bees in that ten kilometre eradication zone of any actual detected varroa mm. is uh, destruction of everything, uh, woodware. Uh, all your equipment, all your bees, everything's all got to go. Um, Woodware, because the, the, I take it this is a burrowing mite? Or a, no, 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 why, but just, just to, this is this is a, an extreme eradication measure. Um, project, measure, yep. Right. Um, so it is the, the destruction of everything. The honeybees will be euthanized, and then they're destroying any of the hive material, just in case. Oh, you know, it's, it's, it lives through the the bee destruction and, and then wants to go out looking for another host hive. Um, so what we've found now is as they've been setting up the eradication zone, the surveillance zone, the notification zone, uh, what we saw a few days after that is the whole of New South Wales became a whole biosecurity zone. Um, and therefore, uh, Queensland, New uh, Queensland, South Australia and Victoria have closed their borders to any bees coming across the borders, which is which is a good thing. Yeah. Uh, to protect our other states, what they have found as they've been going through that surveillance zone, which is a 25-kilometer zone, uh, they've been finding more and more sites with varroa in it, and they've been doing uh, reproductive wow. counts of the mites. And there is yeah. there is some speculation it may have been here longer than they've realised. So it might have been here a few months before they've detected it. Mm-hmm. Um, on on Saturday, uh, yesterday, we had um, four more uh, premises that were detected. So they've been detecting premises Far with out. multiple hives, so sites, yeah. um, and they've detected four more independent sites, which is really uh, bad. What? So that um, eradication zone is spreading slowly. It's there's it's it, it's all around Newcastle. There's a site to the north which they knew about and and expected as one commercial operator had moved in and out of that hive in the last few months. And so that's how they're trying to backtrack the time framing. Last few months. But, yeah. The other the that's other expected one. No, the other unexpected one is it's moving south, which is not what we want. Because uh, once we start hitting the doorstep of Greater Sydney, that's when things get bad. Any, yeah. Uh, because uh, that that being because you said it's a, it's a major city and therefore yep. the bigger populations and yeah, bigger population, more bees, more, bees. more yeah, more, bees. more wild bees. Uh, bees can you know we we know bees can travel five to seven kilometres comfortably looking for food, and if they're yeah. flying that distance with the the parasite right. mite on their on their body and it jumps to another one in the field and keeps jumping, then it, it can spread pretty quickly. So, All right, let's, um, let's maybe yep. define what we're dealing with. Uh, might be a good idea. What is yep. a varroa mite? What does it look like and uh, uh, what does it do and why are the effects so catastrophic, potentially? Yep. So it's about, I think it's about two millimetres is the biggest it gets. Mm-hmm. Little red uh, mite looking almost like a traditional little crab mite. Yeah. Um, and it is a parasitic mite that originally uh, was hosted on Apis serrana, the Eastern or Asian honeybee. Right. Um, and in uh, the 60s, 70s, it, um, it jumped host from Apis serrana to Apis mellifera, the Western honeybee, uh, European honeybee. Yeah. Uh, it... Hadn't, it, it has still not really evolved too well to survive with the varroa mite. And so the varroa mite attaches itself and feeds on the hemolymph 
of the uh, of the bee, and basically drains it of nutrient and also um, introduces bacteria and disease into the wing uh, into the bees. And we we see some diseases uh, like deformed wing viruses and other other nasty diseases get into the hive, and eventually uh, leads to the to the hive collapse and. Uh, what what we saw, you know, a decade ago or, or more is uh, all of those hives dying, uh, you know, overseas without explanation. And it, that was, you know, it was a, a, a compounding uh, series of events that included varroa mite and other stuff. Yeah, they, they used to, they, they were calling it before they sort of worked it out. It was, it was sort of this hive collapse yeah, sort of syndrome right. type yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this was a, a big attributor to that. Um and we've managed to keep it out of Australia for an awful long time. Our biosecurity is, is very good here in this country. And we're um, an island so, continent, which is uh, the yes. other thing that sort of helped us. Yep, that's right. Yep. So, um, yeah, and to put it into perspective, this little, we, we you know, we're saying a two millimetre at the maximum little mite. If mm. we were to scale that up to human size, you know, as, as a bee to a human, um, it would be equivalent to one of us walking around with a, with a parasitic mite the size of a dinner plate sucking all the goodness out of us. A dinner? Oh, I was doing... Yeah. I was imagining yeah. my pinky. I was, I was showing Matt to, to show off and go, I think that's it, Matt. And, yeah. and then he went, no. Oh, geez, that's okay. Yeah. That, so yeah. that's not good. Um, yeah. And But the thing is that, okay, so some people might go, oh, yeah, well, you know, what's what's a few bees, uh, as yeah. the general said in World War One. Um, <laughs> what's a few bees? But... The uh, the roll on or the cascading effects of this can be quite catastrophic, calamitous yeah, yeah. even. So so there's a few things we've got uh, we've got a, a situation coming up very very soon in the next four to six weeks where the almond pollination um, of migratory beekeepers uh, is is expected to happen. Yeah. And what we've seen is incredible growth in New South Wales and Northern Victoria. Uh, where the almond fields are uh, heavily uh, foreign investing and owned uh, almond fields that uh, are, are expanding just, just phenomenally fast. And right. this year, um, it was already estimated that there were not a com- enough commercial beekeepers with enough hives yeah, to bees. pollinate the bee uh, to pollinate and bring their bees in, pollinate the almonds that uh, uh, have been planted this year. So the Department of Primary Industries was calling on large hobbyists with, you know, 10 or more hives to oh God. Yeah, potentially okay. get involved with pollination. Yeah, yes. oh, no. So basically saying, we've expanded too fast, we need more bees, uh, the commercial guys don't have enough, we need more. Yeah. So this year they were expecting... So it's sort of like to... saying, we have, we've got all these STDs around... Hey everybody, let's meet in the in the hot tub. Yeah, well that's it, 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 this is what yeah. it is for bees. This yeah. is our mass spreader yeah. event. Yeah. This year they were calling on two hundred thousand beehives to be brought in for the four week oh uh, pollination God. period of the almonds. Yeah. And in the past, it has been a mass spreader event of small hive beetle and other diseases. American fowl brood is a is a big one that that can get out of hand in the pollination season. All right, we got uh, you bring, 30... Yeah, you bring them all together. Sorry, Matt, you got about thirty seconds left. 
Um, yep, so this is um, yeah, this is this is not good. Um, we need to we need to come up with a big strategy for the almond pollination. Um, and in terms of how bad is it? Uh, a few years ago, we were in Europe and we were in uh, Switzerland in the spring, mm. and meeting with beekeepers, and they were telling us that they'd had a uh, a harsh winter and lost seventy five percent of all of their hives over the winter with varroa and colony collapse disorder. Wow. So we're already down on numbers. We need more bees even just for our almonds alone. Yeah. Um, remember, 65% of our food crops are dependent on, on the European honeybee, and we could potentially be in a situation where our bees have not experienced varroa before and take a heavy toll, and we could be seeing those numbers easily of 75% of our hives lost. Well, you um, you and Vanessa from Melbourne Rooftop Honey, can you keep your ears to the ground? And also representing the Victorian Recreational Beekeepers Association, uh, yes. keep your ear to the ground and we might get another report from you in the next couple of weeks or so, if that's okay. For sure. And if you could get the uh, the listeners to maybe check that uh, Bee Watch website and uh, give us the location of any wild or unmanaged colonies they see in and around the uh, public areas. So if it does get here, we know where we need to go and look. Bee Watch. Google it. Thank you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks, Matt. Hi, this is Ben Shuri from Attica Restaurant. Support independent local radio like Triple R. Yeah. Uh, ben Sherry, um, I'm sure I think John here might have sold some mushrooms to Ben Sherry. John Ford, welcome back to the station like the prodigal son. We've, 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 we've cut some mushrooms for you. Thank you. It is so, so wonderful to be back. I've not been here at Triple R for a few years now. It's been a few footy seasons. It sure has. Um, and... Look, um, I yeah, it is it is it is is wonderful to be here and want to be sitting in this chair mm. um, because this chair which I used to sit in for ten years, <laughs> so for ten years, yeah, yeah. So let's give some full context. John Ford, he here for to represent unearthed mushrooms. Well, we will get on to presently, but before that, you had a life of marine biology, and of course, you would be here earlier on Sundays. Tell us a little. Bit about that. I would be. I'd be a much earlier riser. I'd mm. be here at nine o'clock with uh, Radio Marinara and the wonderful Bron and the team. Bron and Bushy Tail. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All talking, Always talking sustainable seafood. And indeed, I was on your show a number of times talking yeah. sustainable seafood. But uh, yeah. now I'm talking about mushrooms. Of course, sustainable mushrooms too, because they're my mushrooms. Yeah, my mushrooms, and I want to sustain them, and they're <laughs> going to sustain me, baby. <laughs> That's it. Um, so, why did you uh, turn your back on the on the sea and? And 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 look for the uh, mycelium. I hate to feel that I've turned my back on the sea. I would never turn your back on oh, the sea. It was, it it was just a, an easy cliche. I just grabbed for it. <laughs> um, no, I um, I look. I was into sustainable seafood, I guess, because I love mm. food, and yeah. I really love good food. I love cooking in new and interesting ways. Mm -hmm. And I love seeing other people's results when they're cooking with new and interesting ingredients in new and interesting ways. Interpretation so, of great ingredients. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I used to love working with fishermen. I used to love sort of championing, championing sustainable seafood. Yep. Not because sustainable seafood, seafood also tended to be a higher quality often as well because you looked after it, you get better price. There's a whole lot of things that we're trying to develop in the sustainable seafood market. Mm. All right. So people are going to pay 
pay a little bit more because it's sustainable, right? So yep. envi- the, the environmental credentials. You've also got to look after that seafood. It's also got to be the top quality one out there. And so th- that's sort of built in that way in terms of getting a high quality and sustainable product. Yeah. Um, so, and seeing what, what chefs did with it was amazing. Um, but now it's like, okay, I'm not a fisherman. I'm pretty skinny. I don't know how many people have seen me, but I'm a pretty skinny guy. I'm not going to be a fisherman. I'm not going to be hauling ropes and, and uh, you know, it just, it just is just not going to happen. You're saying a job for an ectomorph like myself. <laughs> exactly. <bastard>. Yes. <laughs> um, but something I could do, and yeah. something that I was really, really into ever since I was a teenager, was mushrooms. I can walk and around. So I just went for it. It was a challenge. It still is a challenge, but here I am right now. Yeah. And, um, and you've discovered that there is this wonderful teeming life underground and a lot of us don't really understand or, or know that, you know, that uh, that little thing that is poking its head above the, uh, the ground, there's a lot more underneath, isn't there? <laughs> Absolutely. So the mushrooms that we're familiar with, I mean, they're, they're, it's an entire kingdom, all right? So you've got the, the kingdoms of life, right? You've, um, you know, plants, animals, you know, bacteria, and we've got fungi, right? Mm. And so the way we interact with them, we often see them as quite negative, as something as being a mold or, you know, something, or athlete's foot or something similar or some mm. kind of diseases we may get in our nether regions. But the, we also <laughs> eat them. But we don't eat many of them, right? So there's not many varieties at all or many species that we generally eat, particularly in Australia. And so I guess there's there's a a whole kingdom to explore in that sense. Um, But also so much to draw on from overseas. And I've talked to so many chefs from overseas and they come, they've either worked overseas or they're from overseas, they come to Australia. And um, the moment you see mushrooms, they're like, oh, fantastic. Someone who can give me more than just a button or a portobello Mm. or, you know, so just, just, or a watery um, oyster mushroom, right? Um, So certainly globally, um, certainly in, in the food world, there's a lot more on offer. And so one of the things that I really try to do in my business, Unearth Co Mushrooms, is to um, find a lot of those mushrooms that are mm. being grown overseas, bring bring them here and make sure that we can, uh, we, that chefs can access them. Because a lot of Australian chefs who hadn't been overseas, you know, had never seen more than two or three types. Well, I remember there was a time, uh, quite a few footy seasons ago, but uh, the only type that you get was the domesticated white mushroom, and you could either get them as caps or flats. That was it. And that was, you know, before um, a Swiss brown was some, you know, amazing thing. The first time I ever saw a Swiss brown was working at Two Faces with Herman Schneider. And um, and that's a million years ago. And now, look at it. We've just, we have so many um, and we are spoiled for choice, are we not? Oh, we are we are now certainly, and look, it's it's slowly getting there in the sort of the more the retail market where um, where people can go down to the supermarket. You know, there's a couple of you know um, extra varieties, but looking around more in sort of the um, yeah the sort of providors or the um, sort of a little bit more the higher end sort of grocers and so on, you or can really see Asian grocers as well. Yeah, next yeah. next to the tofu, mm-hmm. like now I'm now seeing just. Huge refrigerated cabinets, like open open air type ones, just full of tofu. And then next to it now, mm. 
is full of mushrooms. So the majority of the gourmet mushrooms in Australia are imported. So they would all be imported mushrooms, mostly from Korea, um, but also from Taiwan, Taiwan. and from China. Yeah, yeah the, Taiwan, king, the king China. mushrooms come from, a lot of those started mm. from Taiwan, did they not? Yeah, absolutely. Well, they're the experts. Yeah, I mean, right. They've been doing it for a very, very long time. Um, and now they've got extremely effective techniques in being able to have mushrooms that are weeks or if not months old that are be able mm. to come out here and, and still be eaten and still are reasonably fresh. And they're actually still alive. It's quite, a, it's quite amazing because we, I've actually taken some of those mushrooms and um, we have a way of cloning them. So we can actually copy the mushroom itself. It's, it's kind of bizarre, bizarre sort of uh, wow. fungal way things. You can take a little tiny piece from inside that mushroom, right? And you can put it on, we put it on an agar plate, get yeah, a bit, bit of a petri dish, a petri dish yeah. and then it will literally grow. And you can use that to grow and then to grow mushrooms down the track. No so way. those mushrooms that you get in there, you know, they, they, they may be quite old, but they're still alive. It's quite amazing. And so wow. we're able to take those and clone them and grow them ourselves. Why do I think of you as Batman <laughs> and you're in the bat cave working on... <laughs> On mushrooms, <laughs> there's, there's a lot. There's a lot going well, on in the in the whole mushroom well, cultivation is, chain. I can tell you. You need Alfred as your butler to be um, helping you out, maybe making you Negronis while you're actually. <laughs> yeah. doing And Sarah, I thought you might like a Negroni. Um, <laughs> wow. So, um, uh, with in regard to, so we're seeing lots of different varieties, and I want we've we've got you know a few minutes to sort of discuss this, but there is very importantly. Um, a real technique involved in cooking mushrooms because it would appear that most people are cooking their mushrooms wrong. <laughs> I would never tell anyone that they're cooking no, you're doing anything wrong. wrong. No, yeah, no, you no, are. No. You are. You, what are you doing? What are you doing? Look, Step the, back from the pan. John's here. No, He's going to tell you how to do it. No, 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 no. Well, look, look. I'm, I'm not sure. There's two techniques out there at the moment which are which are pretty popular. Um, yeah. One of them is um, actually sort of boiling the mushrooms up in in in, in water initially, um, before then removing that water and then and then frying them um, in in a very very hot pan. Mm. And so it kind of changes the, the texture. It does uh, does uh, leave them being very. Um, it's got more of a simmer. It's not boiling them in that sort of sense. It's more yeah, just okay. a sort of a simmer you throw the mushrooms in initially yeah. with with some water you sort of simmer them up a little bit you drain that water you take them out then you put the pan back really mm. hot bam and so but in in my opinion and it works it works quite well don't yeah. get me wrong it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a good technique it's however okay. yeah it, it, and it's a technique that works very well for mushrooms that are reasonably old all yeah. right, and a lot of commercial mushrooms that you you'll get um, are reasonably old and they're grown in certain ways to basically pump them full of basically water, right? So when they All hit right. the pan, a lot of people will, um, when you buy sort of, you know, oyster mushrooms in particular from a yeah. uh, supermarket in one of those little sort of plastic t- uh, trays, yeah. you, you throw in the pan and then they just bleed water and you're like, what, what is, what's going on there, yeah. right? Um, however, if you have a mushroom that's fresh, yes. right, and you get an oyster mushroom, um, I'm going to say, like, like what we will sell, you put that onto a pan, right, a hot pan, it is not going to do that. It is going to retain all its moisture w- within within itself. Really? So you don't need it. So if you're using, if you're using fresh mushrooms, mm. you don't need to use that technique. How do you know how fresh they are? Well... You've got to trust your uh, who you buy from. This is getting back to my sustainable uh, seafood days, oh, right? Okay, right? You've got to you've got to put some trust in who you're buying from, right? Yeah. Generally, if they're under plastic, they're probably not all that uh, all that fresh um, yeah. because they're, 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 that is a um, you know deliberately to to extend yeah, shelf and life, especially if they've been in a container ship going across the equator. Uh, ab- absolutely, and so um, but so, so the way I do it, the is. way I do it in terms of getting with fresh mushrooms, it just involves a very hot pan and cast iron or something similar, right? You really heat that up then when it's hot oil goes in mushrooms go in 
bam, and you really only need a couple of minutes, you know, turn soon a couple a couple of times, um, and then turn it off. All right. So the latent heat in that in that pan, particularly cast iron pan, will continue to cook the mushrooms. But at that point, when mm. you turn that pan off, all right, that is when you add any of your seasonings or flavors. That's when you add your garlic, if you want garlic. That's when you add your salt, because you don't put salt in first, it'll draw all the water out. Mm. You don't have the garlic in that hot pan, you're going to burn it, right? Mm. So anything, or your Japanese sauce, like a suyu sauce or something similar, you add it at that point of the, t- in, uh, of the cooking, That's right? The period, uh, yeah. Salt and pepper, you add that when you turn it off, and then you still get that latent heat of the pan through it. Yes. Um, give it for another, uh, leave it for another five minutes or so, and then you've got amazing mushrooms. You can do whatever you want with them. Now, you've developed this, this whole wonderful business called called Unearthed Mushrooms, and uh, I know that you do sell to some selected restaurants mm-hmm. and things like that, but also it's um, it's available for mere mortals like uh, <laughs> myself and Matt uh, to go and find. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes left. Where can we find your mushrooms? Yeah, well, um, Damien Pike at the Pran Market, who is the mushroom man. And, he's the uh, mushroom whisperer. He is the, he is the mushroom <laughs> Um, he um, he's a man. Yeah, so if you go there, most of his mushrooms will be will be for, will be mine. All the weird and interesting interesting ones. So you can go to him. The um, the leaf stores. Um, also searing, uh, selling at series, um, series fair food and series market. Um, so there are a few places around. But um, but you know, also get out to restaurants where we're really putting a lot of focus back into into restaurants now because. Mm. We're back, baby. Like we're, you know, it's been a tough, you know, being being a being a business that is, you know, basically basically selling almost exclusively to restaurants before before the pandemic. Yeah. Um, you know, we had to go through our own pretty tough time. So um, it's really exciting, and I am really looking forward to uh, to being back on the beat and getting into <laughs> some restaurants too, and 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 uh, and connecting with chefs because that's what I really really love. And uh, I, you have a lot of little children that you uh, that you nurture and send out into the world but uh have you got a favorite child oh it kind of it kind of changes yeah what is it um, yeah, now yeah. in july 2022 uh, in july 2022 um i would still say it's the namako mushroom um which is a Jap- very small little japanese mushroom um mm. and something that we've been consistently growing for a long time and they put use it in miso soups but it's got this amazing mouth feel like almost mouthy little pop right it's quite it's only kind of a uh, two centimeters um, um kind of you know uh, and it's quite firm mm. and you pop it in your mouth and no matter how long you've cooked it or what you've done with it it's got this solid this like little kind of pop when you that is because it's firm but it's still ah it's it's amazing i love it namako mushroom so that is most definitely my favorite namako we're getting the wind up from uh from matt uh john ford unearthed mushrooms you heard how to cook them and uh you need to trust your mushroom seller uh it's uh it's brilliant to have you back in the studio thank you for coming all the way to join us it's been wonderful and um, and if you come up with any new recipes and uh, new varieties, keep in touch because we'd love to talk again. Absolutely. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Yeah, that's a happy kind of, uh, happy stuff here. Uh, yeah, well, we've got to get on to the happy stuff after uh, talking to Matt about bees and honey. But uh, someone who's spreading a little bit of love, a little bit of love from the east coast of... Uh, the U.S. of A. Uh, we have in studio Paul Caston. A very, very good afternoon to you. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Cam. 
Love that uh, that very lovely uh, American accent. So, what part of uh, the U.S. Of a, are you from? Oh, I'm originally from Connecticut. Uh, grew up uh, on the coastline, a few hours out of New York City. Wow, that's God's country, isn't it? Oh, boy. That's yeah, a beautiful place. No, it is. I remember as a kid, I used to go to Vermont a lot. I think I talked to you about that when uh, when we first met. And, uh, woo, come fall, uh, mm-hmm. or what we call autumn, uh, I think it's maybe one of the prettiest places in the world to, to be. Mm-hmm. Oh, it sure is. I've actually lived up there for a few years as yeah. well. And, uh, Lucky man. Yeah. Lucky man. But you thought you'd, uh, you came down here. Um, and uh, you and your partner uh, have decided to, uh, well, to do something that's pretty courageous in, in this time of uh, these economic times, which is uh, open up a restaurant. Oh, I'm not sure courageous is the word. Like a yeah. lot of my chef friends use the word crazy, but uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the, yeah, things have actually worked out very well so far. So, yeah, great. Yeah. So uh, the idea is that um, you've uh, taken up um, an establishment and uh, it's a funny thing. You'll you'll notice, folks, if you look up uh, Deep End Pizza, the address is Brunswick Street. However, it's sort of just around the corner in Westgarth Street, is it not? The actual place. That's right. We're at the rear of the building. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so you decided to call uh, the business Deep End. Mm-hmm. As in off, going off the deep end? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That seemed appropriate given the timing. There's a few <laughs> metaphors there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we're deep end and um, and also in the fact that um, you display the, the rich culinary diversity that, um, that makes up for America. Like, um, we don't have this sort of culinary diversity that you're – country has mm-hmm. yeah that, that we I, I suppose we tend to export a sort of uh, homogenous uh, uh, food culture that's um, basically oh. evolved from uh, the industrialization of that's food the in the early 20th century yeah that, because uh, you, you the it, on one hand it is this you know this industrial behemoth like you know cheese for instance in in America can be mostly terrible with a few artisanal people in Vermont, actually one of them, uh, making incredible things. But through uh, that growing up and opening up the country, there is amazing diversity, isn't there? Oh, certainly. Uh, with, with cheese, uh, go to California, Wisconsin, uh, all over the place. If you dig a little deeper, you'll, you'll start mm. to find some very, very good quality. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and this has certainly been... Uh, an expression of the, uh, let's face it, the the migrant experience, and then sort of filtered through. Uh, sorry, man, cliche. It's cliche time. Uh, the horn of plenty. <laughs> Ow! Sorry, he's just hit me. Um, I, he does that when I cl- do cliches. Um, but if the thing is that you know Italians came with their cucina de povero, you know the the cuisine of the poor. And they came to this place where there's just so much stuff everywhere and interpreted things differently. Would that be a, a decent way to sort of put this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, certainly. Um, in, in some circumstances, it's adjusting to local products, others mm. adjusting to local tastes. But, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, because one of the great examples of that for me is um, spaghetti with meatballs. 
<laughs> you know, it's like if you would have give like an Italian in Veneto, you know, a bowl of pasta with lots and lots of sauce and these bloody giant meatballs, you'd, the Italians would be horrified. Oh, certainly. Imagine taking a, a can of it back to Italy and seeing how they enjoy that. Oh, my God. Yeah, I don't know. I'd, you'd, you'd be a, a, a brave person to do that. But here in your restaurant under one roof, you have these uh, representations of how the city interprets this one product, the mm-hmm. pizza. And um, maybe you might want to talk a little bit about those sort of things and the differences between these great cities. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, you'll find, uh, and uh, traveling all over the States, there's a huge regional variation in, in these kind of things. And what I've picked to start out with are uh, three of the more commonly known ones. So Detroit, a little bit less so. It's been an up-and-comer over the, the last maybe five years back home. That's mm. been taking the pizza so by storm. It's, it's a sort of a recent innovation, is it, in pizza? Um, let's see, that, that would have evolved uh, just after World War II. Um, okay. It, it was invented at a former speakeasy called uh, Buddy's Rendezvous. In Buddy's Rendezvous. Uh, I love it. He, he gave his wife the task of producing some sort of pizza so they would have some to serve to, uh, to mop the guests. Up, mop and, up all uh, the, the bathtub Ginny's making. Yeah, yeah she, <laughs> she took old uh, tool trays from the auto factories and... Uh, cooked up this fluffy focaccia like uh, crust in it and yeah. da da there is there's buddy's pizza so this is this isn't a round pizza this is a, a rectangular pizza that mm-hmm. comes out and it's all about the f- as you said fluffy though mm-hmm. focaccia like yes yes uh, something that uh, you know, looks a bit heavy but uh, actually is just you know, light crispy and uh, delicious and yeah. uh, uh, i guess it's uh, uh one feature that kind of identifies this style would be the uh, crispy cheese all the way around the rim of it. So, <laughs> so it's everybody. those end, end bits that everybody oh, fights yeah, you over. Fight over the corner pieces. The yes. corner pieces. <laughs> it's not so much about the middle; it's the it's the corner. Mm-hmm. It's like crispy lasagna. People will Italians will kill each other for for those bits there. <laughs> yeah. So so that grew out of uh, Detroit. Um, and that is as far away as you can. Like it is pretty far away. It's a few city blocks uh, away from what we see as crispy, small, you know, round round pizza. Mm-hmm. Um, but that sort of pizza was allowed to develop. Again, it's a little bit different in the Big Apple. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. That that developed uh, much, much earlier. Um, the very start of the 20th century, yeah, uh, right. Italian immigrants, yes, uh, yes. using oh, the local products to make a uh, a local pizza. I believe uh, what was it? Uh, Lombardi's was the first, and is now still the longest running uh, pizzeria in the U.S. Uh, opening uh, around 1905. Right. Yes, and uh, there there are so many old stalwarts all, all over New York City that have been around for 50, 60, 70 years that uh, have really been the, the backbone of uh, what is New York pizza through this whole thing. Yes, yes. So, yeah, and that's sort of the closest we have to an Italian style, so thin mm. crust, uh, either uh, red or uh, bianco a bit. Do the Americans do like a white pizza? Oh, certainly. I'm sure they do, yeah. Uh, and also, but... Uh, very, very much the way that they seem to have made it their own is 
the style and amount of pepperoni that they put on it because that's a little bit different to the Italians, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there is, uh, they're definitely a little bit more liberally uh, topped. Mm. Uh, not necessarily always as over the top as your big greasy slice uh, the, the the general uh, corner shop kind of thing that yeah. has become kind of the quintessential uh, New York pizza experience over time. Yeah, yeah, right. And um, and then this is the the big one, um, as as well as Detroit and the Big Apple or a New York pizza that you can get um, at your new place called uh, Deep End Pizza in Brunswick Street. There is also a thing which, hmm, some even within the city, um, regard as a bit of a cultural oddity. Would that be a fair thing to say? <laughs> oh, oh, sure, yes. Uh, so what we're serving is a Chicago stuffed pizza, which... Uh, and that's you know, what you'll be when you have... Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, yeah. uh, this evolved from a Deep Dish in uh, uh, 1974, these two restaurants called uh, Nancy's and Giordano's, uh, both claimed that they independently came up with this uh, the idea yeah, within months of each other. Which one was owned by the mob? <laughs> oh boy! Actually, it was uh, Nancy's. They, uh, <laughs> they, they they kept they kept opening restaurants and then just selling them off one at a time to really? to another family. Uh, family, <laughs> family. And uh, eventually, uh, they started opening too close to their original restaurants. There was a territorial dispute. Um, one of their restaurants was burned when that didn't do the job they blew it up and then burned down another one <laughs> yeah, yeah. so yeah lots of fun in the chicago pizza scene <laughs> yeah my god yes yeah, so yeah nice pizza place you got here <laughs> shame if something would happen to it but the chicago decided and it was only recently my god as recently as the 70s that the way to make a pizza is to build up <laughs> uh, yes, what we've essentially got is two crusts High with rise. all of the cheese and uh, toppings hidden in the middle. Uh, yeah. now, in that 10-inch pizza, we're talking about 440 grams of uh, mozzarella alone, plus anything, anything you add, your sausages, pepperonis, and whatnot. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Now, I've tried your deep dish pizza, and I've got to compliment you on the intensity and... Um, the validity of your tomato sauce they use great tasting hmm. tomatoes oh thank you um yeah so we use an an uncooked tomato Ooh. sauce uh, mm. here at deep end uh, yeah <laughs> basically i i try not to cook the, the tomatoes to death before we've put them in the oven and give them to you so oh, okay. you, you get you, you get a little bit extra freshness and brightness with yeah. with it handled this way yeah, wow. Well, um, and uh, the, uh, how's business going? Oh, hey, the, the response has been amazing, uh, more than we, we could have hoped for. So has, we, we are constantly busy now. Has Broadsheet discovered you yet? Oh, yes. They are, uh, so they're they, onto it. Yeah, okay, yep. so, the, <laughs> so the moths are in. Yep. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with Broadsheet and all that, but uh, the early adopters will come and have a look at it. Congratulations on uh, your place. Oh, thank you very much. Um, a wonderful showcase of, uh, well, American uh, culinary traditions, really. Uh, and you get to experience them all under one roof. And you got the licenses been organized and signed off? Uh, that, that is still in progress. Uh, that should be happening within the next few weeks. Oh, great. Okay. Well, and uh, one more time, the name of the place is? Deep End Pizza. Yeah, well... 
Congratulations, Paul, and thanks for coming in to have a chat with us. Uh, John was here and was listening in on that. My mushroom man, thank you <laughs> for coming in. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I'm very hungry. Yeah, yeah we, we actually, it's, it's working, isn't it? Uh, and who knows, maybe we can get some nice mushrooms on uh, the pizza through, John. Matt, please. Cameron, all this talk of pizza is making me very hungry. Uh, in Digiduity up next, uh, Nari's on filling in for Crystal. I see Nari's looking, he looks like you're ready. You ready? He's Thumbs ready. up from Studio One. Thumbs up, laptop open, ready to say g'day, and he's got a cup of coffee. It's all good here mm. at the trip, and uh, stick around. We better get out of here. Matt, a pleasure to see you. As always. Oh, God. <laughs> All right, we're out of here. Bye. Hi, this is Cam Smith, and you've been listening to the podcast of Triple R's Eat It, a weekly radio show about food and drink, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website. 